he read the scripture. Our hearts are opened, our minds are opened as we approach the word of God. We are seeking by the spirit of God for him to illuminate the meaning and the application to make clear the sense of his word and to apply it to our lives. So let's ask the Holy Spirit to illumine our minds and our hearts this morning. Father, we come before you and we ask that you would pour out your spirit, you who has given your spirit, that we may sense his influence, his filling, his governing us as we approach your word. Grant to us teachable, soft hearts that we may learn, that we may know what it is you're comforting, you're challenging, you're meeting us with in your word. Thank you that your word is useful, that it's inspired by you, and it trains us, it it changes our direction, it changes our course, and it equips us for every good work as we seek to love you and love our neighbor. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The passage upon which our teaching is based this morning comes out of Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Hear the word of the Lord. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock on the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked And behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh." that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to this people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We are embarking, this is week two, on our study of the Lord's Prayer. Last week, the prayer can be divided, by the way, into a preface. We covered that last week. 
kind of the prologue to the prayers, who we are addressing, the foundation, and we looked at that last week, our Father who art in heaven. This morning is actually the first petition, the first thing that as we're taught to pray that we are to seek. And what are we to seek? The hallowing, the setting apart, the reverence of the very name of God. So the very first petition structuring the prayer to our Father is set apart, hallowed, distinguish your very name, your being, your identity, your character, your person. Sinclair Ferguson in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount in the section on the Lord's Prayer mentions, he says, if you divide the prayer up totally, it'll focus on five concepts. You have the worship of the Father, you have the kingdom of the Father, you have the sustenance of the Father, the grace of the Father, and the protection of the Father. So five themes. So if we're counting, and I said last week, one of my goals is I want to see a, have us be practical in our learning and growing in the practice of prayer. The only way you're going to draw near to God is pray, prayer in the scriptures coming together. And so these five themes are very good, these five concepts thinking about worship, the kingdom, the way God provides, he sustains us, that's give us this day our daily bread, his grace. We seek daily his forgiveness, his restoration, and the protection that we need of the Father. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the powers of evil and the powers of darkness, so lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. Dr. Ferguson goes on to say that when we pray, hallowed be your name, it is not that God's name can in itself be made more holy than it is. You're not going to add to the name of God. It is already holy. But he writes, and I think this is extremely important and extremely practical, he says, Rather, when we're focused on hallowed be thy name, we're being reminded. We remember how much we need his help to recognize just how holy or separate from us he really is. And indeed, we even need his help to come to him with the sense of awe and wonder that is appropriate to his glory. So if we've seen in the preface to the prayer, our Father, who art in heaven, talks about intimacy And community, the fact that it's our Father, do you realize that in worship? You're approaching the Father together with your brothers and sisters. And here we look at reverence, awe, or wonder. This morning we're going to look at a classic passage, Exodus chapter 3. And remember I said, in a sense, the structure we're doing this is we're taking each theme out of the Lord's Prayer, each petition out of the Lord's Prayer. I'm going to look at a different passage. So you're going to get Old Testament, New Testament. You're going to get Gospels. You're going to get letters. Get a little bit of the whole counsel of God rather than just going through a book. We're still doing what I call expository preaching. But in a sense, we're doing it around this topic, how do I grow in prayer? One of the very practical things we learn as we begin to think about what it means to hallow God's name is that God's ways are not our ways and God's thoughts are not our thoughts. So in other words, one of the first steps practically to hallow God's name, to set it apart, is to have a true sense of wonder or of the mystery of God. I'm afraid one of the things we try to do kind of in our culture of where you have to have all the answers, you have to have certainty, is we want God to be kind of this stationary, one-dimensional God. So there are people who focus on simply the, the holiness of God. He's just holy. Or there are people who focus on just the love of God. They're soft and tender in their approach. We like those people usually. 
But God, as he's revealed in the scripture, is not a one-dimensional cartoon character of a God. God is complex, multi-dimensional. He reveals himself in the fullness of his being. And we have to recognize that there is mystery before this God. Before the name, the being that we're hallowing, that we're setting apart. There is a sense of wonder. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. That's why the apostle Paul in Romans 11, when he was thinking about God, oh, the depth of the riches and the wonder of God, how inscrutable, in other words, incomprehensible are your ways. A sense of hallowing God's name is a sense of going, he's the creator, he's God, we're not. And having that sense of mystery. Listen to how St. Augustine put it. One of the fathers of the church. He says, we are talking about God. What wonder is it that you do not understand? He says, if you do understand, then it is not God. He then went on to say, understanding is the reward given by faith. Do not try to understand in order to believe, but believe in order to understand. So he went on to say, here's the practical application of this. He says, if you should ask me, what are the ways of God? I would tell you that the first is humility. The second is humility. And the third is still humility. To hallow God's name is to be caught up in the wonder and the transcendence in the mystery that you can't get a hold, you can't grab a hold of God. That we're drawn up in faith to draw near. Is it any wonder that Moses, who we're speaking of, who we're thinking about this morning, in the book of Numbers, it's written of him, now the man Moses was very meek, in other words, very, very humble, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. How was that humility cultivated in Moses' life? And how can it be cultivated in our life? By the revelation and the cultivation of the hallowing of God's name. Think about Moses. He is a very human, very flawed leader. Think about it. When he is sent, and that's kind of the outcome of this passage. I'll give you the end of the story first. He's sent to Pharaoh to deliver the people of Israel. Think about who Moses was at this point. When he sent to the Israelites, what did they know of Moses? So when they heard, oh, this is our deliverer, this is our champion, what would they, who was Moses to them? In their thought, he'd be an Egyptian because he's brought up in Pharaoh's household, kind of with all the glory and the riches, a man who committed murder, and now as a result was a fugitive, on the run, why was he in the wilderness in the first place? He's fleeing for his life. This is the Moses who God is calling to redemptive leadership among his people. It's understandable why Moses would be a reluctant leader. It's understandable why Moses, when he heard this call, when he received the name of God, would be like, why are you sending me? Why he would give these objections. What was it that Moses needed? He needed the name of God. Because the name of God is God. Is it any wonder here, I'll give you the end of the story again, is it any wonder that when the birth of Jesus is announced, and I so appreciated singing, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, because even though we think of that as a Christmas hymn, we live, the context of our lives is between Advents first and second advent of Jesus. It ought to be our prayer and our hymn and our song lifted up to God every day. Come, thou long expected Jesus. But when the 
birth of Jesus was to come back, Matthew chapter 1 records it this way. It says, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. What did Moses need to hallow his name? He needed to know that God was with him. That he had not only the presence, he had the reality. The existential reality, the intimate reality, the powerful reality of God's presence. What do we need more than anything else? We need God. Let's learn what the revelation of God's name means. And we're going to look at three things. And again, this is the complex God whose ways are not our ways, inscrutable, incomprehensible are his ways. But look at the revelation of the name of God. We learn that God's name is holy. We learn that God's name is love. And we learn that God's name means mission. Three things we learn from this call of this reluctant leader. You may be sitting here and saying, I'm not sure I want to know what God wants me to do. I may not be uh, cracked up for that. I may not have what it takes. You need the hallowing of God's name. You need to know that his name is holy. You need to know that his name is love. And you need to know that his name is mission. First of all, I didn't print the passage which immediately precedes this, but I want to read it. It's just three verses, Exodus 2, 23 to 25, because in a sense it gives the context, it sets the stage, if you would, for Moses' call. He says in Exodus 2, it says, During those many days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Very interesting. God is concerned for his people. They are his. He remembered his covenant. What's the heart of the covenant? That God is our God, and we are his people. So what did God hear? Their groaning. What did he know? What did he remember? He remembered that they belonged to him. His heart and their heart are bound together. He's bound up with his people. So he's intimately concerned with their welfare. And that concern, that remembering, that knowing, which knowing in the Bible is never mere information, by the way. It's not like God is wanting you to say, you know what you lack in your life? You know, you lack in life information. Like, you really, you know, you would live for me more holy. There'd be more power in your life, more love in your life. If you just knew a fact about me, like 2 plus 2 equals 4. You know, if you knew that information, let me give you that fact, and all of a sudden, boom, transformation. That's not knowing in the Scripture. Knowing in the Scripture is actually a highly intimate term. That means that we're bound up. It means union. It means communion. So here is God, his concern, setting the stage for what follows. And you have verses 1 and 2 where it says, So Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet... It was not. Now, we don't know why Moses went to the west side of the wilderness. All we know is it's not by accident. So he's being driven kind of further into exile, further away from community, from people. God obviously knows what he's doing, don't you think? He's about to reveal himself to Moses, and he knows, let me get Moses where I can meet him. And he comes to Horeb, which is the narrator tells us is the mountain of God. And verse 2 kind of gives us 
the explanation behind this strange sight, a bush that burns but is not consumed. It tells us the significance of this. Moses has now come face to face with the angel of the Lord, identified in verse 4 as the Lord, the God of his ancestors. One commentator put it, we need to respect here the mystery that neither we nor the writer himself can fully explain. But what we do know here is that God is revealing himself. Later on, it will be in the formality of his name. But his name, his character, his person, his being, is being revealed to Moses. And what we know is here's the first step in hallowing God's name is the recognition to recognize that he is holy. That God is holy. That he is set apart. See, Moses is naturally curious, and what does he do? He draws closer, he draws near, where he's met with holiness himself. And in verse 5, as Moses, kind of out of curiosity, and I think a bit of humility, is drawing near, God gives him two commands. God says, do not come near. Holiness is dangerous. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Interesting. Do not come near and take off your shoes. And then he reveals himself. Verse 6, he says, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. In other words, I'm the God of your history. These are your ancestors. This is your family, and I'm their God. I'm connected. I'm not a new phenomenon. I'm connected to your past, so you know I will be real to you in your presence, which means what? I'll be with you and I'll be faithful in your future. Isn't it amazing that we're connected to the God who was, who is, and who is to come? Does that not give some security and solidness to your soul? And so look at Moses' response. It says, verse 6, all this, at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. First thing we need to learn, cultivating prayer, learning to grow in prayer, is prayer is not a casual thing. We're going to learn it's an intimate thing, but it's not a casual thing. Sometimes I hate bringing things in steps, but there is an order to things. We have to recognize that God's name is holy. Moses is getting a crash course, as one commentator put it, in holy etiquette. And listen to how John Piper put it. I love this. He says, we are all starved for the glory of God, not self. He writes, no one goes to the Grand Canyon to increase self-esteem. Why do we go? Because there is greater healing for the soul in beholding splendor than there is in beholding self. The point is this. We were made to know and treasure the glory of God above all things. And when we trade that treasure for images, everything is disordered. The sun of God's glory was made to shine at the center of the solar system of our soul. And when it does, all the planets of our life are held in the proper orbit. But when the sun is displaced, everything falls apart. The healing of the soul begins by restoring the glory of God to its flaming, all-attracting place at the center. The first thing Moses learns here and comes face to face with is God's name is holy. But, and this is extremely important, 
holiness by itself. And this is why I said earlier, the name of God, the person of God, the being of God is multidimensional and complex. Holiness by itself will crush you. Much in the same way as if you draw near to the sun and you're not shielded, the closer you get to the sun, literally it will destroy you. Holiness by itself will crush and destroy you. Which means you need more of the name of God. You need to know that God's name is love. Look with me at verse 7. And I want you to notice the verbs in this text. Verse 7, then the Lord said. So what is he doing? When the Lord speaks, he's revealing himself. He's telling us who he is. He's telling us who his name is. Because name of God is equivalent to the character and the being and the person of God. All of this is leading up to the climax of verses 14 and 15. So here he is revealing himself and he says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. Remember what I said knowing is. Knowing is not just I have information. God's not up there and says, oh yeah, they're suffering. I've got that information. Let me calculate that. He is intimately involved. He knows their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of their land to a good and broad land. Talks about the land, and then he says, And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Do you see the multidimensionality of the love of God, how his name is love? He sees their mystery. He's heard their crying. He has seen their afflictions. He knows their suffering. He has seen their oppression. And he says, and to me this is the greatest news in all of the world, fulfilled in Jesus Christ, when he says, I will come down. You want to know what makes Christianity unique from every other religion on the face of the earth? There is no other religion where their God comes to humans. You don't read that in any other religion. Where the founder of the religion comes to lowly humans? Do you not see that as love? Do you not see that as amazing hope? One of the biggest objections, one of the biggest struggles people have, most difficult questions that people ask today, concerns the issue of evil and suffering. They say, how can God, this God, be both good and powerful at the same time? In other words, and you know the logic. Maybe you've felt this or asked this yourself. How can God, if he's all-powerful, can do anything, and yet he's all-loving and he's all-good, how can he not take care of my suffering? How can he not heal me? How can he not take care of my circumstances? Now, true to his name, his name is complex. Tim Keller writes, he says, if we again ask the question, why does God allow evil and suffering to continue... And we look at the cross of Jesus. We look at the fulfillment of, I have come down. I've heard their cry. I've seen their affliction. I know their sufferings. And I will come down. All foreshadowed and prefigured in the life of Moses. Ultimately fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
So if we who are looking after the fact look at this and look at the cross of Jesus, Dr. Keller writes, we still don't know what the actual answer is, but he says, however, we now know what the answer isn't. It can't be that he doesn't love us. It can't be that he is indifferent or detached from our condition. For God takes our misery and suffering so seriously that he was willing to take it on himself. God promises to come down, which is the usual biblical language that is used when God is going to intervene in human affairs. And boy, did he intervene in human affairs in the coming of Jesus Christ. God's love moved him to action, which is why verse 9 says, And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh. See, the plan is announced. He will come down. He will take, his name is holy. His name is love. But lastly, his name is also mission. I want you to put yourself in Moses' shoes for a second. I know it's difficult, many thousands of years ago, and you're probably going, I don't know, I can't, I was supposed to take off my shoes. Just put yourself, enter into Moses' life for a second. And picture you're hearing this, okay? Imagine you're Moses, and you've been listening intently to God's revelation of who he is and what he's about to do. His speech to you. You've heard him say he will deliver the Israelites out of Egypt. Can't you? He's probably going, yes! I like that. You've heard him say he's going to come down. Yeah, come on. I'm waiting. Let's go. And then you're Moses, and he says, oh, by the way, I'm sending you. Time out. That's not what I was expecting. Hang on, what about you coming down? I am coming down through you. Sound like a contradiction? It's not. You know why it's not? He says, I will come down. I will send you. Because God, and remember his ways are unscrutable. Remember, there's mystery in this. God acts, God moves through the instrumentality of his people. He still does that today. Jesus, as he was meeting with his disciples, preparing to be ascended into heaven, said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you So I'm coming down, even the exalted, glorified Lord in the person of the Holy Spirit is coming down and you will be my witnesses and I will do ministry. I will reflect glory. I will bring people to myself. I will bring healing on the world. I will bring shalom gradually, progressively. God's doing the work. You don't build the kingdom. God builds the kingdom. You're not the architect. God is. There's great freedom in that. But he does it through us. Which is why we shouldn't be surprised at what comes next. Know your hearts. Even as we hallow God's name, know your hearts. Verse 11, Moses gives an objection, which I think is very understandable. I mean, I think one of the practical things we need to learn, even as we hallow the name of God and draw near to him, one of the things we learn is that God is always patient with our questions. He never gets angry with our questions or even our doubts. Moses' error and ours is not having the doubts, is not having the questions. It's failing to trust God when God gives us the answers. Because verse 11, Moses says to God, "Um, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children out of Egypt? 
That's a great question, don't you think? I think it's born of some humility. Moses is well aware of his own inadequacy. God tells you to love your neighbor, it's okay to go, uh, who am I that I should love that person? Who am I that you're calling me to be involved in that person's life? Who am I that you're calling me? And God's answer is not to overrule Moses as an inadequacy. What does he say? He says, but I will be with you. Emmanuel, God with us. The name of God is an intimate name, is a loving name, is a holy name, is a powerful name. His answer is not to overrule Moses' inadequacy, but to assure Moses that he will be with him. He is not alone in his mission or his task, which leads Moses to the next objection, anticipating, okay, you've told me you'll be with me, but now have you seen my resume? I kind of lack some of the qualifications. How am I going to be perceived by my hearers? You know, remember what I said earlier, what do they know of Moses? Brought up in Pharaoh's household, traitor. Murderer, uh, committed murder, and now he's in exile as a fugitive, fleeing a wanted man. That's the way to go into a job interview, don't you think? Here's my resume. Tell me your qualifications. Well, let's see. I'm a traitor, I betray, I murder, and I'm on the run for my life. So begin to think about that. So if his first objection is, I don't think I can do this, his second objection is, they're not going to receive me. And then God's answer is given in verse 14 when God says to Moses, so Moses is saying, when I come to them and they're questioning me, who should I say sent me to them? And God said, I am who I am. He said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. God is revealing his proper name, the name by which he is to be known to Moses and to the Israelites and to us, the name that we are to set apart and to hallow. It's a play on the Hebrew verb to be, and it indicates, it's often translated Yahweh, and what it means is his name. Who God is, is he is the saving, delivering God. Moses asks God, who am I to tell them has sent me? And God says, I am the saving God. Now, what does this mean for us? A couple things. How are we to understand this today? Think about this. One of the things I want us to recognize is that If you don't know Christ, if you're here and you either know you don't believe, not sure whether you believe, do you want to recognize how hopeful this is? Because this is telling us God calls flawed human beings. I've mentioned a couple times, do you recognize Moses did not have a great track record up to this point? And the initiative is all of God's. And he calls flawed human beings. Do you recognize what he can do for us? This is the saving God, the God who delivers, the God who calls out of bondage, the God who calls out of bondage to yourself, the God who calls us out of addiction to ourselves, the God who calls us into the glorious freedom and the glorious adventure of knowing him. Which brings me to the second application. That is, if God has called you into into his kingdom, he's called you to serve. 
God calls his children into kingdom service. We learn this from Moses. Moses is saved in order to be sent. That sent that doesn't necessarily mean it has to be Africa. It has to it could be sent to your spouse, sent to your children or grandchildren, sent to your neighbor. But you are saved to be sent. Bill read earlier in our service out of 2 Peter chapter 1, and one of my favorite things in that is it talks about how through the very precious and great promises of God, we have come to be partakers, participants in the divine nature. If there isn't mystery in that, I don't know where there's mystery because I want you to think, it doesn't just say Jesus is here and we're next to him. Come on, Jesus, where we're going. We participate in his very nature. His love, his gentleness, his strength, his courage, his wisdom, his holiness is somehow infused and communicated and united to us. Do you know that that is greater than the plagues that Moses will see? Greater than the miracles? Greater than the burning bush? All of those things demonstrate the glory and the nature of God. We actually participate in the glory and the nature of God. God is in you and you are sent to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world, ambassadors for Christ. This is the name of God, the name that is holy, the name that is love, the name that means mission. As I read last week, this quote from Edmund Clowney, salvation means that God, you, God writes his name on your head, your hand, your heart. He makes his name yours by making you his. Hallowed be his name. Father, we approach you with fear and trembling, and yet we approach you with joy and wonder, because through Emmanuel, God with us, our addiction to ourselves, our sinfulness, our self-absorption was all tattooed to Jesus. You, count, you do not count our iniquity against us because you counted it against Jesus. And on the cross, we see holiness and love kiss. Mercy and faithfulness, mercy and justice come together. And then you call us to be sent with that message, to simply be messengers, witnesses, ambassadors. Hallowed be your name. May we learn to set apart your name, the complexity of it, the mystery of it, the glory of it, and all that we do through Jesus our Lord. Amen.